Welcome to the latest edition of the Case Collective podcast. My name is Kingsley Grimshaw and I am joined this month by Flynn Hark, who is a law clerk in our Brisbane office. We have again handpicked a selection of interesting cases for discussion today, which include consideration of what it means to use a motor vehicle, a dual insurance fight, and a successful denial of cover based on relevant misrepresentations, non-disclosure, and fraud on the part of an insured. Thanks, Kingsley. Our first case today is RBK and Montague and TAC, which is a decision handed down by the Victorian Court of Appeal where the court needed to consider whether the Transport Accident Commission, or TAC, was required to indemnify the driver of a motor vehicle who abandoned an unconscious, drug-affected woman in the backseat of the motor vehicle. By way of background, in January 2012, the applicant, who was 19 years old at the time, was provided heroin by the first respondent. The first respondent then drove the unconscious applicant from Southbank to Brighton, where he parked and abandoned the vehicle, leaving the unconscious applicant in the back seat. The applicant was discovered still unconscious two days later. The applicant alleged that the first respondent had negligently left her unconscious, immobile and abandoned, and as a result of being exposed to high temperatures for two days before being discovered, she had suffered injuries, including cardiac arrest, bilateral pulmonary emboli, heat stroke, multiple organ failure, a hypoxic brain injury, and paraplegia. Initially, a summary judgment was entered against the first respondent in default of an appearance. The applicant then sought an order that the TAC indemnify the first respondent under Section 94, Subsection 1A of the Transport Accident Act, 1986. Relevantly, that section holds that the TAC is liable to indemnify the owner or driver of a registered motor vehicle in respect of any liability in respect of an injury or death of a person caused by or arising out of the use of a motor vehicle in Victoria or in another state or in a territory. The TAC denied it was liable to indemnify the first respondent. At first instance the Victorian Supreme Court dismissed the applicant's claim on the basis that the applicant failed to establish her injuries were caused by or arising out of the use of a vehicle as required under Section 941A, and further, that the first respondent was not a driver for the purposes of Sections 3 and 941A. The applicant then appealed the first instance decision on the basis that the primary judge made an error in failing to conclude that her injuries were caused by or arose out of the use of the vehicle. The Court of Appeal considered that the question that needed to be answered was, is the TAC liable to indemnify the first respondent pursuant to Section 941A? The Court of Appeal answered yes to the appeal question requiring the TAC to indemnify the first respondent for the injuries suffered by the applicant. This decision followed an in-depth review of the case law in which the Court of Appeal identified that the relevant principle to be applied is that there must be a causal or consequential relationship between the use of the vehicle and the injury. However, this search does not need to be for a single, predominant or main cause. The Court of Appeal concluded that the purpose of the words arising out of under the relevant legislation is to expand the scope of the relationship and not merely replicate the words caused by. After applying the above principle, the Court of Appeal concluded that the applicant's injuries did in fact arise out of the first respondent's use of the vehicle, namely his driving of the vehicle, 
and considered that the applicant's inability to exit the vehicle due to her being unconscious meant her journey did not end when the vehicle was parked by the first respondent in Brighton. As for the implications of this case, it serves as a warning as to the risks of adopting a narrow construction of potentially broad legislative terms, including the terms relevant to this case, arising out of. Thanks, Flynn. My first case note today relates to the New South Wales Supreme Court decision of QBE Insurance and NTI Limited. The matter involves a dispute regarding dual insurance between QBE and NTI. Specifically, QBE sought a declaration that NTI was liable to contribute 50% towards an amount paid by QBE to defend and settle a claim against its insured Georgia's Loader Hire or GLH. GLH owned a Volvo L120E plant loader, which it supplied to a contractor to use in connection with railway maintenance works in the Hunter Valley. The claim against GLH arose on 17 November 2014 when Mr Rennell, a worker on the site, was injured while attempting to remove a rail closure which was being lifted and mobilised by the loader. The loader was stopped at the time of the incident. However, according to the driver of the loader, he was about to continue mobilising the rail closure when the incident occurred. At the time of the incident, GLH held a QBE-issued general and products liability insurance policy as well as an NTI fleet insurance policy. QBE's total costs of indemnifying GLH with respect to the incident were a little over $1 million. Although no claim was made by GLH under the NTI policy, QBE contended that the NTI policy also responded to the claim and so dual insurance applied. Both QBE and NTI agreed that if indemnity was available to GLH with respect to the claim, contribution should be apportioned on a 50-50 basis. However, in dispute was whether a tool of trade exclusion within the NTI policy was enlivened. The exclusion stated that NTI would not pay for liability incurred or caused by operating as a mechanical tool of trade. Tool of trade was defined under the NTI policy to mean the operation of your motor vehicle whilst engaged in and undertaking its designed purpose of excavating, digging, grading, drilling, spraying, scraping, pumping, vacuuming, suctioning, lifting or like operations. At trial, the court highlighted the importance of paying close attention to the words used in the exclusion when considering its operation and scope. Justice Stevenson found that the inclusion of the words like operations suggested that the intention of the parties was to exclude not only liability arising at the actual moment of the nominated activities, but also liability arising while the designed purpose of the loader was being implemented by engaging in those or similar like operations. The key issue, therefore, was whether GLH's liability to Mr. Rennell was incurred or caused by the operation of the loader whilst engaged in and undertaking its designed purpose of lifting or like operations. The court accepted that the NTI policy intended to exclude cover for the risks associated with GLH's operation of each of its vehicles for their designed purpose as tool of trade. The court accepted that the NTI policy intended to exclude cover for the risks associated with GLH's operation of each of its vehicles for their designed purpose as tools of trade, as opposed to their use as motor vehicles. The court found that any liability of GLH to Mr. Rennell was incurred whilst the loader was still engaged in and undertaking the implementation of the loader's designed purpose, i.e. lifting and mobilising the railway closure, and therefore the exclusion was enlivened by the circumstances. On that basis, it was determined that QBE was not entitled to any contribution from NTI. 
The judgment acts as a reminder that the court will look to the intention of the parties when considering the operation of all aspects of an insurance policy, including exclusion clauses. The court will take a practical approach considering the intended commercial operation of the policy when it was first underwritten. Catchwords such as like operations are likely to expand the scope of exclusion clauses and should be appropriately considered when underwriting policies and or determining whether cover is available under a policy in response to a claim. The next case is a decision out of the District Court of New South Wales in Daroma and Inner West Council and Osgrid. In this case, the court was asked to consider if the occupiers of a footpath were liable for damages for injuries sustained by the plaintiff who tripped over a metal utility pit on the footpath and whether there was any defence available in obvious risk or contributory negligence. As for the facts, the plaintiff suffered personal injuries when she tripped and fell whilst walking over a metal utility pit cover that was embedded within a footpath. The plaintiff was walking quite quickly to a bus stop in order to catch the bus when she tripped over the sunken metal utility pit cover. The plaintiff issued proceedings against the Inner West Council, in this case the first defendant, and a partnership of five entities trading as Osgrid Operating Partnership, in this case the fourth defendant. The plaintiff alleged that both the first and fourth defendant were the occupiers responsible for the inspection, maintenance and safety of the pit cover and footpath. At trial, the court ultimately found in favour of the plaintiff against the fourth defendant only. The first and fourth defendants were both relevant occupiers and owed duties to the plaintiff to take reasonable care with regard to the maintenance and repair of defects on the surface of the footpath particularly in circumstances where such defects posed a foreseeable risk of injury that could be avoided by the exercise of reasonable care. The fourth defendant had a system of inspections in place to detect maintenance and safety issues and had previously inspected the subject pit at least once. The first defendant's evidence did not disclose whether they had a system of regular inspection to determine if any maintenance repairs were required. Interestingly, no one from the first defendant was called to give evidence on this point. The court found that although the pit lid and frame was already established when the fourth defendant became an occupier, if its inspections had been carried out properly, the fourth defendant ought to have identified and been aware of the difference in surface heights and taken steps to remedy this defect. The same conclusion was said to apply to the first defendant as an occupier of the footpath, assuming that a prior inspection had been carried out by the first defendant. Again, however, no evidence was led regarding the inspections by the first defendant. The first defendant's duty was said to have been dependent upon what it must be taken to have known about the condition of the pit. The first defendant had no knowledge of the height difference in question and no evidence was presented by the plaintiff demonstrating that the first defendant knew of the risk. In the absence of this evidence, the claim was not made out against the first defendant. The fourth defendant attempted to raise an obvious risk defence as outlined in Section 5, capital F of the New South Wales Civil Liability Act 2002, however, was unsuccessful. The court found that there was a height difference of up to 10 millimetres between the pit lid cover and the footpath and that would not have been an obvious risk to an ordinary, reasonable person who was quickly attempting to catch a bus. 
The court did, however, reduce the damages awarded to the plaintiff by 20% for contributory negligence, as the plaintiff had admitted to seeing the pit cover on her approach and failed to observe the height discrepancy of the pit lid and its surrounding frame. As a result, the damages awarded were reduced down to the final figure of $283,314. This decision highlights the need for maintenance and safety inspections to be carried out diligently and for occupiers to adequately identify potential risks. Failure to do so may result in finding of negligence even where risk management systems are in place if those systems aren't rigorous enough or effective in identifying those risks. The final case note for today is another one from the New South Wales Supreme Court being the decision of City Line Concrete Pumping and Chubb Insurance. It involves a decision whereby Chubb was found to be entitled to reduce its liability to nil in circumstances where the insured had failed to disclose all relevant information in relation to pre-existing damage to a machine. In terms of factual background, in January 2019, City Line, a sole director concrete pumping business, engaged an insurance broker to effect on its behalf an insurance policy in respect of a concrete pump fitted on a Volvo truck. Although City Line had used the unit for some time, it had not been previously insured. By way of an email sent on 24 January 2019, the broker had informed Chubb that there had been no accidents or claims involving the unit. Neither City Line nor the broker otherwise completed a proposal form. However, prior to 24 January 2019, the unit had in fact been involved in two incidents in which it sustained damage. Whilst neither incident occurred through fault of City Line, on each occasion, City Line made a claim against the third party responsible for the accident and ultimately settled the claim through that third party's insurer. In response to the broker's request for a quote, Chubb provided a quote and applicable policy wording. Relevantly, Chubb's email stated that terms are issued on the basis of nil losses or claims in the past five years. City Line subsequently accepted the quote without providing any further details as to the claim's history. As a result, cover under Chubb's mobile plant and equipment package insurance policy was bound on 13 January 2019. Shortly after the inception of the policy, the unit was damaged in the course of general maintenance by a City Line employee. City Line sought indemnity under the policy for the damage sustained to the unit. Chubb declined indemnity on the basis that City Line breached its duty of disclosure, made relevant misrepresentations, and the claim was otherwise fraudulent. City Line commenced proceedings at the New South Wales Supreme Court seeking a declaration of its entitlement to indemnity under the policy. At trial, Chubb contended it was not liable to indemnify City Line because A, it was entitled pursuant to Section 28, Subsection 3 of the Insurance Contracts Act to reduce its liability to nil by reason of City Line's misrepresentation and non-disclosure relating to the unit's history, and B, the claim was made fraudulently for the purposes of Section 56 of the Insurance Contracts Act, and Chubb was therefore entitled to refuse payment. At the trial, City Line conceded that the unit had suffered previous accidents and that there had been associated losses and claims. Chubb led evidence from the head of Inland Marine Australia and New Zealand that had the broker or City Line disclosed the circumstances, Chubb would not have provided cover. His Honour found that statements made in the broker's email of 24 January 2019 that the unit had not been involved in any accidents and that it had not been the subject of any claims were misrepresentations for the purposes of Section 26 of the Insurance Contracts Act. 
In the circumstances, his honour held that a reasonable person in the position of City Line could be expected to know that the statements would have been relevant to Chubb's decision to accept the risk, i.e. City Line was seeking material damage insurance for the unit, and thus it should have been obvious to City Line that the history of the involvement of the unit in prior incidents and damage sustained in those incidents would be relevant to Chubb's decision. For the same reasons, His Honour concluded that CityLine did not comply with its duty of disclosure under Section 21 of the Insurance Contracts Act, particularly in the face of Chubb's statement in its 24 January 2019 email that the terms of cover were subject to there being no losses or claims for the past five years. Having regard to evidence adduced at the trial, His Honour determined that Chubb was entitled to reduce its liability for the claim to nil, pursuant to Section 28, subsection 3 of the Insurance Contracts Act, as this was the position it would have been in had the misrepresentation not been made and the true position disclosed. As to the second issue, His Honour found the claim was made fraudulently in circumstances where City Line A failed to reveal pre-existing damage in answer to direct questions during the interview with Chubb's loss adjuster, and B, City Line admitted when cross-examined that it had made statements to the loss adjuster referable to the pre-existing damage, knowing them to be untrue, in order to avoid jeopardising City Line's claim under the policy and to make it more likely that Chubb would pay the claim. His Honour considered City Line's false claim for indemnity in respect of the damage to the unit was not a minimal or insignificant part of its claim. In those circumstances, His Honour concluded there was no scope for the operation of Section 56, Subsection 2 of the Insurance Contracts Act, which gives the court a discretion to order an insurer to pay such amount as is just and equitable if only a minimal or insignificant part of the claim is made fraudulently and it would be harsh and unfair to deny the insured the remainder of the claim. In terms of implications, the decision illustrates the importance of accurate pre-cover disclosures and serves as a useful reminder to brokers and insureds alike to ensure disclosure of matters prior to policy inception that a reasonable person in the insured's position could reasonably be expected to know to be relevant to the insurer's decision whether to accept the risk. The case also demonstrates that in circumstances where there is evidence of dishonesty on the part of the insured in the context of making a claim on a policy, the courts will have no difficulty relieving the insurer of liability to indemnify the insured under the policy. That's all for this episode of Case Collective. Thanks for joining me today, Flynn. As always, you can read a full summary of the cases discussed in today's episode and get in touch with our team by heading to our website at bnlaw.com.au. And if you'd like to hear more, make sure you subscribe on Podbean or Apple Podcasts. Until next time.